0: Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily's gonna talk to us about Arctic foxes. What's going on up in the Arctic with these little white furry critters. We got Chris Harvey Clark from Delhousie University back with us again, talking about his new book on sharks. Yep, there's so many of them off the East Coast now, he's written a book. I've got some tips on how to figure out which of five fishing profiles you fit into. And I've got a reflection on what it is to be a responsible angler. Come on, Lewis. Let's go find Lily. Hey, Lily. Hi. Last episode, we talked about snowy owls. What do you got
1: for us this time? So some say that the Arctic fox is the warm-blooded critter of the cold north.
0: That could very well be, but you know, their red cousins from the south seem to be moving up and giving them a hard
1: time. It's, it's possible. It may have something to do with their being the smallest member of the canid family, which includes uh, wolves, dogs, and coyotes. Oh. In adulthood, there's only about 75 to 115 centimeters in length. Despite their small size, they're really sly predators, and they're able to smell like seal dens miles away. So they're known for their really, really white fur. Arctic foxes, fittingly nicknamed snow foxes, are uniquely well-suited for life in frigid temperatures. So living as far south as Canada's northern boreal forest all the way up to the Arctic, they're more than a match for winter.
0: So how do they deal with all that cold?
1: an arctic fox ultra thick fur coat is more than fur snow actually it's essential for their survival it gets cold where they live like so up to minus 50 degrees celsius with their thick fur that keeps their bodies at a toasty 40 degrees Whoa. yeah so their furry tails serve as a purpose too and they act as a blanket when they sleep and it provides them balance too when they're walking
0: are they always white
1: So in the winter, the color of their coats uh, makes it difficult for bears and wolves and like other birds of prey to spot them. Oh, yeah. But depending on the time of year, arctic foxes can be brown, gray, and sometimes kind of blue, which allows them to blend in with other seasonal colors. So they grow thick fur between their toes, acting as little snow boots and muffling their footsteps so nearby predators are less likely to hear them.
0: Oh, that's cool. Do they use dens like wolves?
1: Well, like they're insulated fur. An Arctic fox's den is kind of another thing to for their survival. Okay. So they're really good diggers. And they can burrow as far as like two to three and a half meters underground. Wow. So a single den can have up to a hundred entrances. Wow. So this makes it that they're always they always have an alternate way to enter or exit without running the risk of being ambushed.
0: Do they hibernate?
1: Uh, during a particularly really rough stretch of weather or, you know, during a series of, of unsuccessful hunting excursions, they actually follow the example of bears. So long as they're warm in their dens, foxes can hibernate like bears for short periods of time by slowing their metabolism and heart rates. These dens are really crucial. Arctic foxes will use the same hideout for generations. Really? Right. So some dens that have been discovered are like 300 years old.
0: Wow. I heard the red foxes are actually going in there and kicking the white Arctic foxes out and taking over their dens.
1: It's like colonialism.
0: So what do they like to eat?
1: So lemmings are their favorite snacks, but Arctic foxes, they also eat uh, rodents, birds, fish, berries, insects. Uh, If they get desperate, they'll eat vegetables and find bear leftovers, too.
0: Including red foxes moving north, what other threats are arctic foxes up against?
1: In addition to the cold, arctic foxes are up against a few, like a lot of other threats, like inadequate food supply, hunters, diseases like rabies and mange. So shorter winters may seem that their life might get easier. The changes that are taking place in the Arctic, such as the migrating red foxes, also bring more challenges.
0: Mm. Yeah. Gives with one hand, takes with the other, eh? Yeah. Hey, Lily, what do they look like?
1: So they're really cute. They kind of look like husky puppies oh. all the time. Yeah. And they're re- they're white. Like all the pictures you see when you Google Arctic Fox, they're, they're white. Yeah. But they have little black tipped ears and they have really black eyes and a little black nose. They look like Pokemon. If anybody knows what like a Pokemon kind of looks like, this would be a perfect real life Pokemon. So they have like big eyes. They're yeah. really cute.
0: And V-shaped ears that stand up, upside little, down Vs. Little, oh.
1: little, yeah, little pointy ears, yeah. tiny, tiny little ears. And like, oh, they're adorable. They, they're stuffed animals, basically.
0: Are they tall and lean or short and squat? Or? Well, they're short. So they have short legs. Yeah.
1: But they really, they look like a little dog.
0: Low to the ground. Yeah. Huh. You would think they'd be really long legged, but I guess when you want to walk on top of the snow, it doesn't matter how long your legs are. It's more about having big wide paws.
1: Foxes in general don't have long legs. Yeah. So it's more they have short little legs and really big tails. Hey, Lily, thanks a lot.
0: And we've got Chris Harvey-Clark from Dalhousie University. Chris, you've got a new book out in search of the great
2: Canadian shark. The North Atlantic is warming in the 94th percentile worldwide. The only place that's warming faster is the Arctic. Wow. And, and it's terrifying. It's uh, awful to see. We're getting sea turtles up here every winter now. Cold stranding is stuff we never saw when I was a kid here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and more great white sharks. You have to be a lot more careful about where you're diving now. You know, it's funny, um, in the last it seems like four years of, Four years ago, we started getting pings on one of my receivers at the electric torpedo race site. And last summer, we had at least 28 different white sharks go past that site. And uh, they're on their way to a seal colony about two miles up from there. But I, of course, had had a white shark encounter November 9th, uh, 2021. And it's it, that is detailed in this book. In fact, I'm going to read a little bit about that. It was a scary event. And you know it shouldn't have come as a, as a surprise because Starting in 2020, I've been working on a documentary with a local company, and we've been going down the South Shore, Liverpool, Mahome Bay, and we'd had no trouble seeing multiple white sharks. In fact, we did it, we've, with the fourth year of doing it this year, in four days, we had 140 encounters with at least 13 different animals. And the good news of that, we've been filming all this as an expedition, is we have gotten the first ever in Canada Discovery Channel Shark Week show. So you will see a show this year in July on Shark Week, the first time featuring uh, Canadian sharks and a Canadian crew. But let me tell you about the white shark in encounter. Yeah. This was a total surprise, and it should have should not have been, and I wasn't mentally prepared for it. The water was really warm. Um, we'd had really rough fall weather, as is often the case, tail end of hurricane season, but it was a nice sunny day, and we'd gone and looked at multiple places, couldn't get in the water because it was too rough. We finally settled on a site, I can see from my back door here uh, in Herring Cove, um, called Shabakto Head, which is on the approaches to Halifax Harbor, and there's a big, uh, there's a wrecked hospital ship out there called the Letitia, and the Letitia's in deep water down about 130 feet with a sandy bottom and we often will see torpedo rays on that bottom so we kind of went out there hoping to see a torpedo Uh, and so we went down 110 feet looked around a bit we're coming back we had about half a tank of air left I'll just start there a few minutes after we had started our return I looked up slope over my shoulder and above us saw a giant tuna-like lunate tail about three feet across disappearing in the opposite direction into the murk about 25 feet away I was at 75 feet, my buddy Michael behind me probably 10 to 15 feet back. I just caught a glimpse and immediately recognized it was the tail of a great white shark swimming right on the bottom above us at about 60 feet, silhouetted against the surface. I immediately turned 90 degrees into shore to face the shark, looked uphill where she had disappeared, and began to signal Michael waving my arms while not taking my eyes off the spot where she'd last been seen. A few seconds later, the shark reappeared, now to my right, again upslope, at about the same depth, but closer, at about 20 feet. The shark had circled back out of sight, uphill from us, an excellent seal hunting strategy that cuts off retreat. It was a great white shark, the head shape, the thick body tapering to a narrow waist, to the big, broad, caudal peduncle, big symmetrical high aspect ratio tail, and the muted dark gray to white countershade coloration all separated it from the similar but smaller azure mako or poor beagle sharks. The mouth of the shark was slightly open. There was the characteristic big pointy dorsal fin as the shark about 11 feet long cruised slowly by. I could not see male sex organs and did not see any telemetry gear attached to her. She crossed slowly and deliberately the second time about a foot off the bottom and again disappeared. My heart was pounding. Part of my brain could not comprehend, could not believe this late in the season, we were being buzzed by a great white shark in Halifax Harbor. I took a quick look around 360, but still had got, not gotten Michael's attention. I began banging on my tank with my light, trying to attract his attention while not letting my eyes stop moving or my head stop swiveling in constant 360-degree scans, something I learned long ago diving with Greenland sharks in bad visibility. Then the shark appeared a third time, again upslope and now out at the edge of visibility about 30 feet away. She must have circled again a second time up into shallow water, then come around back from the same direction a third time. Something surprising for a species known as a stealth predator that tends to mix tactics in approaching prey. She was sharply outlined, you could see every detail. She rolled past us and disappeared. Michael had finally seen her too. As he caught sight of her, he pointed, and then his head swung back to watch the shark as she disappeared a third time. Now we were truly in the shit. Still at least 100 feet from our ascent line, 75 feet down on a deep dive requiring a decompression stop, with a mammal-eating species of shark that had come back and checked us out repeatedly not good in dark murky water with a great white that had made three passes we had no idea where she was we're a mile from a seal colony i kept seeing a mental image of the dead seal around the corner with a 20 pound piece of meat taken from its back i'd seen the previous week we knew we had to get out of the water as fast as we could michael turned to me with his hand on his head in the classic shark fin position i could see his eyes inquiring shark I'd already seen it twice and I knew exactly what we were up against. He was still in disbelief mode. A shark, multiple passes, a great white, an 11 footer. This size class of white shark scares me the most. At this size, a great white shark is just shifting from fish to a marine mammal diet and their teeth change shape from fish eating needle teeth to broad steak knives, suitable for slicing seal skin and blubber. At 10 plus feet, they, they will stop taking fish as their primary food and are learning to kill seals. White sharks will test bite novel objects during this experimental phase. Holy mackerel, test biting. You know, you hear about that a lot of times
0: people uh, in shallow water on beaches are test bitten by sharks, younger sharks, juvenile sharks. You know, they look down, they feel something tug on their leg. They look down, they see a whole bunch
2: of blood gushing out of their leg. Yeah, and they realize they've been bitten by a shark. A lot of the sharks, it's mistaken identity. People are surfing. They're splashing off their boards. Their hands are, you know, their white, short, shriveled up hands are in the water. And the sharks come in because they think they're a mullet and nail them. And that's a sort of mistaken identity. But whites are really different. They use their teeth a lot for investigation. The handshake from the shark is is to sort of gently nibble something and see, uh, and see, uh, you know, what it is. And we also know they test bite novel objects. My colleague, Dr. Fred Wariski, who also I uh, do the the electric gray work with, um, he has uh, his group, the Ocean Tracking Network, put these slocum gliders out in the North Atlantic. And these are autonomous via underwater vehicles that record oceanographic data. And they're a big, long aluminum tube, about a foot in diameter and six feet long, um, that swims along on its own. Uh, they're painted yellow. They look nothing like a fish seal anything. He's had two of them taken out by whites. And we know they're whites because we recovered teeth from them. And the teeth size would indicate this is around a 10 footer most of the time. So the 10 footers are, you know, the adolescents of the shark world, and they're out there nibbling things to figure out A, what they are, and B, are they edible? Tell us about the green shark. Tell you a Greenland shark story. So I was really privileged myself and Jeffrey Gallant really to be the first people to quite regularly swim with, film with, and study uh, Greenland sharks during a very unusual uh, encounter period with them in the St. Lawrence off uh, the area of Bay Kamal. And the first year we, that they showed up, we'd been looking for looking for them for years, finally found a number of them coming into shallow water and recorded that, and even did a documentary that summer on it. So here's what happened. Anchoring the support boat off a fast-flowing river black with freshwater runoff, I jumped into five-meter water that was the color of coffee. With visibility down to half a meter, I immediately lost my dive partner, although I could hear his scuba regularly releasing compressed air nearby underwater. I settled on the bottom, looked down at my camera, which was barely visible, and began setting up my video floodlights. Something, six cents perhaps, caused me to look up. At that instant, a huge gray nose and eyeball surged out of nowhere, passing my head a few centimeters away. A fast-moving Greenland shark had lunged directly at my head and altered course in the last millisecond before collision. The backwash from the shark's passage pushed me aside, the shark's tail brushing my mask. Instantly, I was galvanized with alarm. Heart pounding, stunned by this unexpected encounter, I reacted instantly, resolving not to lose sight of the shark. I swam hard after it, although in bad visibility, I could only see a patch of its flank half a meter away. Finning hard in pursuit, I turned on my camera and recorded the small patch of the shark's back I could see. It was disorienting with no visibility and no top or bottom of the water column to keep in sight, so I kept my eyes locked on the shark's side. My ears crackled as we continued to descend, together for about five minutes through warm water that was about 12 degrees centigrade and dark brown. Soon all light ceased and we were swimming in pitch dark other than the narrow cone of light provided by my video floodlights. Finally, after about eight minutes, the shark broke through a thermocline layer at about 30 meters depth and we entered a much clearer icy layer of two degrees centigrade water over a black abyss. Now I could see the full body of the shark, which was a good-sized male, about three and a half meters, covered in scars. We were descending fast off a fjord rock wall, which at that moment felt like the loneliest most alien place on the planet. The shark was heading for the bottom at a 45-degree angle, which was 100 meters below us at this location. Having thoroughly recorded the male top, bottom, sides, and genital regions, I realized my air supply was dwindling and it was getting very deep, past 40 meters. I reluctantly said goodbye and turned for the surface. As I hit the thermocline and lost all visibility, it was instantly much warmer, so much so that 12 degrees centigrade felt like a hot water shower. I surfaced off the side of the fjord wall and slowly swam 400 meters back to the boat, pondering what monsters lay in the abyss below. As I climbed up the dive ladder onto the support vessel, one of my colleagues, jean Foret, pointed a video camera at me and asked what had happened. Years later, I can still feel the hairs in the back of my neck stand up when I watch the footage now and see my flushed, scared face as I retold the tale of what had happened. My colleagues were amazed and even a bit doubtful about my encounter until they saw the video. These sharks are very old, don't they? They get 150 years old. Is that right? Oh. Much, much older than that. You know, I was actually on the Danish uh, research vessel, Dana, when we went up to eastern Greenland fjords um, and caught a number of Greenland sharks and the sharks that didn't survive capture, uh, we collected the eyes from. And Julius Nielsen, uh, was a graduate student on that trip, used those eyes to identify the ages the lenses formed you know sort of very soon after conception. And so it's really a time clock, and the decay of radiocarbon in that will tell you how old the animal is. Well, Julius's work on radiocarbon in the in the lenses of Greenland shark eyes put their ages uh, at you know upwards uh, in some cases over four hundred years. Wow. Their sexual maturity appears to be at about 150 years of age. So seems to be some advantages of just lumbering around in ice cold water and extreme depths. I mean, these animals are the extremophile on the planet. They live in they live past 10,000 feet underwater, which is, you know, you're getting up to you know, over 3000 pounds per square inch pressure. These are pressures at which things like enzyme processes and cellular metabolism cease. They're living in water that's minus one, again, very little can happen metabolically in those temperatures and yet still they manage to do it. So it's kind of like the reverse of living in a volcano. These guys live in the extreme deep freeze under extreme pressure most of the time and yet are able to, uh, and, and live a long, long time. And I think there still are many, many interesting mysteries to this species that have yet to be. On Locked. I mean, they live in complete darkness down there and then they must eat some of those really crazy, you know, deep sea monsters. Oh, when, when I've done necropsies on them and we, you know, one of the interesting things is that they eat all kinds of things. So they'll tear blubber off dead whales. And in fact, uh, dead whale carcasses on the bottom of the sea are probably being colonized, at least in part because... Animals like Greenland sharks open them up and then the smaller invertebrates, the crabs and sea stars and things can get in there and eat them, which they can't, you know, they can't get through the skin of a whale. But as soon as the Greenland sharks colonize it, then they can. And here it is in a black abyss that has fantastic electroreception on its head. So it can detect that, you know, and a lot of these species are cryptic. They just lie on the bottom, hoping that their cryptic coloration and camouflage protects them while well, the Greenland shark comes along, senses their electric field and hoovers them in before they know what's happened my goodness it's a totally different world my friend and you've been studying this for how long now oh gosh you know started with six skills back in the 80s, really, I guess. I did my first paper on six gills and then Greenland sharks. And then more recently, it's been torpedo rays. And right now we're looking at the use of photo identification methodology for all the white sharks we've been recording because we've got over 40 now on record as part of this uh, study we're doing down on the South Shore. And it appears that there are about five different characters you can look at in white sharks. It's just like a fingerprint. You can identify individuals based on their marks. Um, What hasn't happened yet, we haven't developed a good mechanized machine learning learning way to do that. And I think that's the next step. And that may even happen on my campus at Dow because we have a very good uh, computer science, machine learning, uh, AI um, division there that is quite keen to take this on. So that'll be the next chapter, I think. Artificial
0: intelligence, facial recognition. You're going to know these sharks intimately now
2: absolutely you've
0: got so much experience and you've and you've been on so many tv shows i mean jeremy wade and uh, with the green sharks and you know uh, on and on and on and and you've got so many great stories chris thank you so much for taking the time to to share some of the readings from your new book with us today and uh, good luck with all that and let's keep in touch man thank you
2: always a pleasure to chat lawrence and uh, i admire so much what you're doing with bluefish keep it up basically there's five different sort
0: of profiles you can fit into as an angler. You know, there's that cane pole with a line tied onto the end of it, maybe a float halfway down the line. You just swing it out with a worm on the end of the hook or some sort of bait. And you know, this isn't just the Andy Griffith show. They're still doing this uh, in Japan. It's a high art form of fishing. So if you really want to keep it simple, hey, there's technology out there to give you the chance or just get yourself a cane pole or just a thin branch from a tree or are you that kind of push button angler you know that introduction fishing rod the little ones you get in the pack for tiny kids or the next level up it looks like a round sort of pill bottle with the line coming out one end and a handle on the side the reel sits on top of the rod you push a button on the back and when you let go of the button the line comes out the front they're supposed to be really easy and foolproof and they are for the most part, but you know, you can definitely mess them up if you're not careful, but they're a great way to get started. And it's, it's a pretty simple foolproof way of fishing and you can cast, you can go further out, you know, instead of just swinging the line out there, you can actually get it out further. The next type is spinning. And this is where the spool is sort of not spinning, it's facing sideways. So the line flies off the end of the spool, hanging on a reel that's underneath the fishing rod. And then when you want to reel it back in, there's an arm, a thin metal arm that snaps back over, grabs the line and starts spinning. It pulls the line towards the reel through all the guides and then wraps it back on the spool as you turn the handle. You know, it's pretty simple. If you keep the line a little bit tense as you're reeling it in, you never reel it in too slack so you don't get loopy loops on the uh, on the spool that fly off and get all sort of spindly loopy. You know, if you reel it in with a bit of tension, you'll you'll never go wrong with spinning gear, but it's not the most accurate way to fish. If you want to be accurate, you want to go to bait caster and a lot of people think, well, as a blind person, how can you be a, using a bait caster? And that's where the spool spins. It's a level wind or the spool is like a winch with a handle on the side of the reel. It's on top of the rod. You push down with your thumb to release it. You hold the spool with your thumb, you wind back and you, you go forward, you let go with your thumb, the spool starts to spin and the line goes out through the guides and out the end of the rod and hopefully stops when the lure lands on the water if the spool keeps spinning it could just loosen all the line on the spool causing what we call a professional overrun or what is otherwise known as a bird's nest and you can get them out it's possible to get them out if you want to know how to do that yeah you know, let me know and or just look on blindfishingboat.com Under the fishing section there, there's some tips on how to get rid of a bird's nest. But this is the most accurate way of fishing. It also has the most power when it comes to reeling in fish. But it's meant for close hand-to-hand type fishing. You know, not this long-distance fishing like you do with trolling or spinning rods. Then there's the fifth type, fly fishing or center pin fishing. They're both using sort of very simple reels that hang down below the rod. There's no gears involved at all. The handle is attached to the side of the spool. So every time you turn the handle around once, the spool turns once. So it's a one-to-one action. So reeling in line takes forever. So when fly fishing, you quite often don't even reel it in. You just pull it in with your hand and hold it with the other hand and reach forward and grab another bunch of line and pull that in so you're pulling in, you know, half a meter at a time as you're as you're playing the fish. And uh, it can be quite fun. It can be very tricky though because the casting is quite an interesting technique. You you know, you're whipping the line back and forth above your head. It's going behind you, it's going in front of you. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You know, back and forth. And uh, so you have to be careful what's behind you. No trees or branches or things like that. Or people that you can hook with your little fly. The thing with fly fishing, you're not using the weight of the lure to pull the line out. You're using the weight of the line to pull the lure out. Not the, the lure isn't pulling out the line. The line is pulling out the lure. So there's five types of fishing and uh, whatever type you choose to be or use, they all have their place, but you don't have to learn them all. Just pick one and enjoy. How do you become a responsible angler? It's got nothing to do with the type of rod you use or how much you spend on fishing equipment or whether you let all your fish go or, or just keep a few for dinner. Learning to fish, it's like a child, right? You first just want to catch a fish quite often you catch them right underneath the dock, a little fish, and you let it go and catch another one. And, you know, it's just so much fun, right? You you get a bite, it wiggles, you pull it in, you let it go. You know, it it gets you hooked. You're hooking fish, but really you're hooking yourself into the fishing process. But you're not going to do that for the rest of your life. You know, it's something, it gets you warmed up. It gets you, builds your confidence. But then you want to go catch a big fish somewhere. Maybe something to eat. Maybe something that's not just, you know, as big as your hand. And then you learn about fish and you learn to study fish and their habits and what they like to eat and when they like to eat and uh, how to present the food to them and the kind of lure and all of that. You know, it gets to be quite a bit of science, you know, a bit of learning experience. It, It takes a lot of experience to understand fish. You have to think like a fish. And then once you master that, then you think, wow, well, I can I catch big fish. Maybe you want to get into tournament fishing and, you know, show how good you really are at fishing. Maybe win a prize and the respect of your fellow anglers. And that's normal. You know, you go to some tournaments. Some people do 10, 15, 20 tournaments a year. I used to do 15 a year and I weaned myself off that. You know, it was exciting. It's so exciting, you know, getting ready and all that. But. In the end, you know, you only win these tournaments if you do a lot of practice beforehand and really get to know the body of water and what the fish are up to before the tournament starts. And if you're not able to do that, like the other top predators, like the other top competitors, you're not going to win too many tournaments. And then at some point, it's not about catching a lot of big fish. It's just about going fishing. And maybe you catch a fish and maybe you don't, and maybe you catch one or two fish and they're just the right size, and you say, I've done for the day. I've got, got a meal to share with my family. I'm good, and you just go and look around and just paddle around or drive around with your electric motor or you know, float around and, and just see what's out there, see what's going on, what's changed, what's different. What do you need to be aware of? What do you need to alert the officials to or just how beautiful it is, you know, the tranquility, the birds, the sun, the wind. The water, you're just out there with nature feeling like just a small bit of nature. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions at... Feedback at AMI.ca. Marka Flallow is our technical producer. The manager of AMI Audio is Andy Frank. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.